Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy 4th of July, America! With the holiday weekend upon us, this week we're sharing a program taped last September with art historian Nanette Luarca Schoff. She's one of the co-curators of Navigating the West, George Caleb Bingham in the River, which is on view at its final venue, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It'll be there through September 15th. Bingham was the first significant American artist to take the newly opened Trans-Appalachian West as his subject. A Missourian, Bingham paintings of waterways are typically presumed to picture rivers in his native state, but in reality they represent the river culture that dominated trade and the movement of people through the Ohio, Missouri, and Mississippi River valleys. Think of them as some of American art's first significant grappling with the enormity and variety of our continent. The exhibition originated at the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth before it moved to the St. Louis Art Museum. Nanette Luarca Schoff, after a break. Plaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. On view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, Framing Desire, Photography and Video, showcasing over 40 recent acquisitions alongside iconic photographs and videos from the permanent collection. Includes works by Larry Clark, Philip Lorca de Corsia, Reniki Dykstra, Debbie Grossman, Candida Hofer, Robert Maplethorpe, Gordon Matta Clark, Nicholas Nixon, Catherine Opie, Arne Svensson, and Frank Thiel through August 23rd. Also, Focus, Mario Garcia Torres through June 14th. For more information, visit themodern.org. And we're back. Nanette Luarca Schoff, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So George Caleb Bingham's paintings of rivers are among the first distinctly American paintings, but of course they didn't arrive fully formed. They don't start as paintings of, of jolly men on a boat in the middle of a river. So your show kind of kicks off with three paintings in which a viewer almost has to look for or find the river in the painting. What are those paintings and how do they lead to what comes next? Well, we begin the show by trying to think about Bingham as a Western artist or in the context of Western art in general in the 1840s. And at the time, that typically meant pictures of trappers, traders, and Native Americans. But Bingham's approach is different and unique and including the river as part of that. And so in 1845, he sends four paintings to the New York-based American Art Union. And we have three of those in the show. One of them is called today Landscape Rural Scenery and shows a family kind of near a small cottage with a river slightly appearing on the horizon line. And that is representative of a group of works that Bingham paints that is concerned with the domestic setting on the frontier. But what I find interesting about the work itself is that there is a mother, a young child, and then a figure of kind of indeterminate age, a, a youth, a young boy. But it's not clear where that where the father is or the that part of that nuclear family is. He might be in the painting, but 
Bingham might also be hinting that that um, father is out working the river. There's also, he also includes in this group that he sends to the American Art Union, the uh, painting called The Concealed Enemy, which is more typical of, more uh, representative of a stereotypical Western scene in that it includes a Native American figure holding a rifle, peering over rocks. Scholars have hypothesized that this is part of a pair with one of Bingham's most well-known river paintings called Fur Traders Descending the Missouri that's now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they have kind of situated the two as, as having a temporal aspect. So maybe that the painting with American Indian figure represents an earlier time on the frontier or a more where in which uh, Euro-American settlement is still kind of tenuous. And then this pair, pair with the fur traders descending the Missouri represents a time where French fur traders were intermarrying with um, American Indian women. And during this kind of early 19th century historical moment on the frontier, in particular on the Missouri River where Bingham grew up, it represents a kind of a more accommodating, a more moment between Europeans and Indians that was really built on the fur trade. So, that, so going like thinking about how does Bingham become this very well-known river painter based on you know when he starts out with these paintings that just that gesture towards the importance of the river to him and his life and to the West. I think it was the success of this group of paintings, the fact that the American Art Union paid $75 for the fur traders descending the Missouri, the most that Bingham had ever earned for a painting. I think that the fact that he learned that there was a receptive audience for this painting encouraged him to develop more complicated compositions and explore different themes relating to the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. So the third of the three paintings, and I want to come back to those first two in a moment, but the third of the three paintings is, is Bingham's portrait of Leonidas Wetmore, in which there is more river than in, in, in the other two. But this painting kind of also has some, some tie-in to how Bingham is portraying the West in a certain way. Definitely. I mean, I think this is it's a really amazing painting because it it's, represents... In, in many ways, West and East coming together. It was painted after Bingham made, who was primarily a self-taught artist working from artist, published artist manuals. He had he made a trip to Philadelphia and looked at paintings and plaster casts at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and looked at large-scale portraiture. And so he creates for the first time a full-length figure representing Leonidas Wetmore, who is from a prominent St. Louis family. And so it's his trip to the East pushes him aesthetically to expand his repertoire. But it also, Wetmore is represented wearing a very tailored, ornate buckskin suit with beautiful kind of fine embroidery along the edges of his coat. He's holding a, standing holding a rifle with a knife tucked into his, his waistcoat. But at the same time, under, you can see that that has been, that suit has been put, Wetmore has put that suit on over his dark suit, his dark, his black neckcloth, things that self-made middle-class man would have worn in a business setting. So he's literally adorning himself with the trappings of the West while at the same time not giving up his gentility, his middle-class manhood that 
Bingham was very much a celebrant of. Bingham was creating an artistic persona that was not one that that was built on him going out into the wilderness and painting trappers. No, Bingham was a self-made middle-class man, and he he understood how Westerners wanted to be seen by others. And so, you know, using the river here, the river and is not Western here. It's it's pretty much a backdrop for Wetmore, but that clothing marks him as a Westerner. The the river here is not wild, but actually quite serene and placid. And in two of these three paintings, clothing also marks the people in them as distinctly American. Wetmore is wearing red, white, and blue, and in landscape rural scenery, the textiles are red, white, and blue. It seems to me he's like he's 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 extending the nation across the continent in paint. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, and then there's also the possibility that this the red in landscape rural scenery is playing off of the popular trope of boatmen who were described as early as 1820s as wearing red shirts. So perhaps hinting that what you know, one engine for this western expansion is affiliation with the river. Let's go from there to jumping into the river world. So so we're talking about the mid-1840s here. What was the river like as kind of a physical geography in this pre-Civil War era? The river itself was referred to, uh, you know, people called the Mississippi, or when they talked about the Mississippi, they were referring to a kind of greater Mississippi Valley. So the Mississippi and its major tributaries, which included the Missouri as well as the Ohio River. So it's it's really the center of the country. And at this point, the boundaries of the U.S. had, you know, had long been, had long gone into the western western banks of the Missouri, of the Mississippi, excuse me, after the 1803 Louisiana Purchase. But many people in the East still viewed Missouri as the westernmost point. They saw St. Louis as its jumping off point to parts unknown. While at the same time, the Mississippi carried an enormous amount of commerce to downriver to markets in New Orleans in particular. So if I could just jump in real quick to, to, to give people an idea, it's in the 1820s and 1830s that the Trans-Appalachian West really begins to open up. And by the end of the 1830s, it is really less expensive to ship goods down the Ohio River to New Orleans from Ohio than it is from the central from the middle of New York to get goods from the middle of New York State down to New York City. So that's kind of, so, so rivers are, are economic highways quickly and, and, and really importantly. Yeah, definitely. And then, and also, I mean, since the 18-teens, steamboats have conquered nature, um, as, as it was put then, uh, and they traverse upriver. So they were bringing goods from New Orleans up to the recently settled areas in the hinterlands of St. Louis and further north. So was was the river a kind of well-manicured genteel area or was it in the popular, both in reality and in the popular imagination, something else entirely? <laughs> um, the latter. So, uh, the, the river was definitely in popular literature and imagery. It was The river was, in the, and steamboats in particular, were really seen as a crossroads for the diversity of America, of the United States. This And this is 40 years before Mark Twain is writing about... Tom Sawyer is 1876, I think. 
Right. And I mean, even Herman Mel, even Melville is writing about steamboats and the kind of shape-shifting identities that one would find on a steamboat in his book, The Confidence Man from 1857. But travel narratives and travel guides uh, emphasize, you know, to really talk about the various languages that one might hear while traveling on the river. Yet at the same time, it, it was much more acceptable and became part of a burgeoning tourist tourist industry to take a trip on a steamboat. The boatmen, however, the men who floated down the river, the men that Bingham painted, were much lower held in much lower esteem. They were known as rabble rousers, fighting with animals as well as men, gamblers and swindlers. And so they there was this popular imaginary that, you know, saw boatmen as a threat because of their mobility, because of their lack of settlement in any given place. And so one of the one of the innovative things that Bingham does, even though he is clearly drawing from popular culture in in his choice to depict boatmen, he is also cleaning them up, making them more acceptable to Easterners as well as to the Westerners who were actually serving as merchants or working on those rivers with boatmen or the farmers who were sending their crops downriver with these boatmen. Before we get to that, I I have one question that you may not know the answer to. So so Bingham becomes interested in the rivers and there are other painters as as you know such as William Sidney Mount who who are interested in rivers too. Rivers, while they were kind of a primary means through which people and particularly goods traveled in early 19th century America, they were not the only way these things traveled. There, uh, turnpikes, uh, private toll roads were a, a, a major way uh, goods and people moved around, particularly the East Coast in the early 19th century. Yet I can't think of any particularly significant art about turnpikes or of turnpikes. <laughs> Any idea why why rivers caught on in early 19th century American visual culture in a way that roads on dirt, turnpikes, did not? Well, in, in with the case of the Mississippi, I think one one reason is it's just its vastness, its breadth. It the river itself was a an, became an icon for the kind of largesse, the vastness, the uh, of the United States, the potential for funneling the bounty of the center of the country to market at New Orleans. And the kind of unifying rivers served as these, you know, unifying entities that that drew drew not only goods but also people and and you know facilitated this facilitated expansion in a way that that's roads, right. turnpikes weren't involved in expansion. That's very that's probably a key point. I mean, also, I think, I mean, I think that there's something, you know, thinking culturally and, and kind of about how ri- the ways that rivers in the 19th century inspired art and literature is, you know, thinking about rivers as spaces that are somewhat indeterminate. Rivers are unpredictable. They, you know, traveling on the river when the river is high is a very exper- different experience than traveling when it's low. No, the landscape is completely different. There's a kind of, I mean, literally a fluidity to identity along the river. I mean, in the mid-19th century, the river was a boundary, uh, if you know, from the American Indian perspective. They were 
from the 1830s and even earlier being removed to the west side of the Mississippi River. For an enslaved African American, the river was either, if you're going down, it was a death sentence if you're going to a Louisiana sugar plantation, or it was this path to freedom if you're going the other way. So there's a lot of kind of evocative possibilities that happen with rivers that maybe you've turned pikes don't don't quite capture. My guest is Nanette luarca Shof. We'll be right back after a break. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, Zoe Leonard Analog, a landmark photographic project which documents, in 412 photographs, the eclipsed texture of 20th century urban life as seen in little bodegas, mom-and-pop stores, quirky handwritten signs, and shop windows. There's also live music and refreshments on Thursday nights, conversations about modern and contemporary art, and Yoko Ono's participatory white chess set, all outdoors in MoMA's idyllic sculpture garden throughout July and August. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino. On view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents a major exhibition of six dynamic and colorful installations on a monumental scale by preeminent British sculptor Phyllida Barlow. Featuring large-scale works created specifically for the Nasher Galleries, the works playfully tower over visitors, creating multiple compelling environments. See the London-based artist's exhibition, Phyllida Barlow Trist, from May 30th through August 30th. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. And now back to my conversation with Nanette luarka So as, as we were saying before my little digression there, one of the things Bingham does is he cleans up the, the world of the men of the river. And, 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 and presents it, maybe not in a wholesome way, but certainly in a tidier way. So how, you know, a question you grapple with a bit a bit in your essay is how are we to read Bingham's river paintings? Um, they're not faithful reproductions of the river world, but how did he want them to be read? Um, I, actually, I think that Bingham wanted his paintings to have multiple meanings because he, for many, in the case of many of the river paintings, he intended those paintings to leave the context in which they were painted, to leave Missouri, to leave the West, and travel and travel to the East. Once they were purchased by the American Art Union, they would then be distributed all over the country. So, fur traders descending the Missouri was awarded to Robert Bunker in Mobile, Alabama. You know, and his, his other paintings of the rivers were distributed to Albany, New York, to New York City, to New Orleans. And so these paintings had to be able to function in very various contexts. 
And so on the one hand, there's the national context. People could see these paintings, take pride in the fact that you've got, on, say, with his painting, Jolly Flat Boatman from 1846, you can see under the, the, in the cargo hold, there are pelts and hogsheads or barrels, perhaps of whiskey or of dried meat um, that these boatmen are, are stewarding down the river to market. No, no, no barrels of whiskey on the deck no. of the boat. <laughs> There's, there are jugs of whiskey. On, there, there are jugs of, uh, on the deck. <laughs> on other paintings. On, on yeah. other paintings, exactly. So he, he definitely, you know, he's, he's playing with the expectations of audiences and people who belonged, men, men and also women who belonged to the American Art Union probably were also reading the print culture that talked about the rowdy river boatmen and their affinity for drink. But, and so he's giving them these little touchstones, for, so making connections across different media and making these scenes familiar because they would have read, say, in Timothy Flint's very widely distributed account of the Mississippi Valley, first published in the mid-1820s. And that, that literary account was quoted over and over again in travel guides, in the pamphlets that accompanied mis- moving panoramas of the Mississippi. And so Bingham's works were familiar, um, even if people had not seen, had not gone to the Mississippi or the Missouri themselves. And so they could function on a national level, on a regional level. But also, you know, if you're thinking about Mr. Mr. McMurdo, who who won a Bingham's painting called Boatman on the Missouri, who lived in New Orleans. Mr. McMurdo was a banker. He had moved to New Orleans from the east. You know, he's one of these men who traveled west who to remake himself. And and I think that maybe maybe not consciously, but that the river, you know, seeing these kind of somewhat indeterminate men, men who you couldn't pin down their ethnicity or their occupation necessarily, but men who were working the rivers, who had the freedom to travel the rivers. I think there was, there was probably some affinity there with, with these American Art Union members. Not only does Bingham clean up his boatmen, but he uses composition to present an ordered world. And I guess looking at the paintings, especially if you look at a bunch at once, I guess that becomes that reveals itself as kind of his primary strategy. Yeah, I think that his I mean, I was I've always been struck by how similar his paintings look to one another. Triangles, triangles, triangles. Exactly. The, he often uses a trio of figures, trio of men, arranges them in a pyramidal composition either and then they're often very grounded on on a strong horizontal plane, either the ground or on the surface of a flatboat. And then the river landscape is very hazy behind them. And we know now, because of technical studies undertaken by conservators involved with this exhibition, we know that he was very intentionally planning his compositions before even putting paint to canvas he created a series of drawings of boatmen. And these are boatmen whom, people whom he posed as boatmen in his studio, not men he, he sketched out on the docks, but characters that he cast wearing clothing that 
doesn't you know that just marked them as laborers but not of any particular sort and he carefully arranged his drawings on canvas and then actually traced made one-to-one tracings in many cases directly from the drawing onto the canvas study infrared reflectography had undertaken for this exhibition by claire berry and nancy hugh conservators at the Kimball Art Museum and the St. Louis Art Museum, respectively, demonstrate that he very methodically traced his drawings onto the canvas and then only then would fill in the landscape in a very loose and summary way. So the figures are really the building blocks for the entire composition. One of the interesting things about those figures is that they are all men and they are all white. Why? Given, given that that's not what the river was really like, of course. Yeah, definitely. I think he, Bingham, I mean, there's a lot of paradoxical elements about these paintings, which is what makes him so compelling, I think. The, he really distills the experience of being on the river to one populated by Euro-American men, and that is indistinctly European-American men, because there were many Germans, many Scotch-Irish who immigrants to the river, who worked the river, uh, many Especially Af- in Missouri, yeah. Exactly. And many, and Especially the people Bingham would have seen. Right. Right. And, the, and he doesn't play up stereotypically ethnic features in any of, in, in the faces of these men. He makes them different visually, if only just to make them um, interesting to look at, but not identifiable. And I think that that is part of his strategy in allowing viewers to make meaning in their, in their different contexts. And so it, it, it not only helps him create a brand, so his paintings look very similar. So if you were to see them in New York year after year, you would recognize them for their subject as well as their style. But also it you know it it the figures identities are indeterminate so that they, that viewers can can put their own spin on it and and the same goes with the landscapes for the most part the landscape scenery is somewhat in, indistinct now if you were from missouri the missouri valley you might be able to pick out a particular rock formation or say that's definitely the missouri valley but, yeah, I see a lot of Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody who has never seen Missouri or someone who didn't know the difference uh, between what the Missouri landscape looked like or the Mississippi or the Ohio, you know, a lot of the literature and the vis- broader visual culture depicting these river valleys, they were creating a recogn- you know, creating a, an itinerary along the river. They picked out natural landmarks, cities, and they were very specific about location in, in depicting places on the river. But Bingham does not include any identifiable cities. He does not include any identifiable natural landmarks either. Any idea why he doesn't include women? The women he does include are in those domestic settings. I think that you know, women traveled the river, but on steamboats. And because he does not depict steamboats, I think that he... Except in the distance. Yeah, yeah except in the distance. And, I mean, and, that, and, it's, and that's another thing that makes him unique. Almost all of the other images of the river are really in trampless steamboats and that kind of technology. So, like, so from the from the very beginning, from from landscape rural scenery till the very end, Bingham loves this triangular comp- composition. 
I mean, the, 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 that, that rural scenery painting, the first or second painting in the show, is anchored by a huge tree, and that creates the triangle. In, in the river paintings, there's a guy or, or an object, say a, a, a stick, that, that builds the triangle. So, so given that this interest in building compositions that way starts in the very beginning of these landscapes that he's doing, do we have any idea where he learns and decides to to build paintings this way? That's a good question. Now, I don't know of any particular source that he's turned to for his overall approach to paintings and his approach to painting figures. Most scholars believe that he, the foundation of his approach is in drawing manuals that were published throughout the 19th century that were designed to teach amateurs how to draw. And there, he, it's also widely believed that he looked to prints as sources, um, and that includes old master prints. So would those have been in Missouri in the 1830s and 40s? Yes. He, in his letters home from Philadelphia, he writes about buying prints while he's there and bringing them back to Missouri so that he can continue his self-study. And he, I, in Saint, he, he had a studio and often worked in St. Louis and so would have had access to images there as well. So he only occasionally strays from these, these triangular compositions. Does it mean something when he does? Is it, is, it, is it indicative of something he's trying to do or show or communicate differently when he gives us a really horizontal composition, such as in Trapper's Return from the early 1850s? Well, with the fur traders descending the Missouri in 1845, that's also a really horizontally oriented painting. But with new technical studies uh, that the Metropolitan Museum of Art did, it reveals that he, he also started with a triangle, that that very horizontal canoe at one point, the underdrawing reveals that at one point he intended for there to be a, a vertical mast with a little flag. And so it would have been it would have made that painting again very triangular at the center. But at some point he decides to distill it. And that's when, perhaps that's one reason that that painting stands out so much. And so when he revisits that composition in the early 1850s, he creates another very horizontal picture. I think he I mean and in in this exhibition we see him continually revisiting subjects and compositions. After he sells the painting, he'll pull in characters, he'll pull in settings such as these wood yards that men worked to sell wood to passing steamboats uh, for fuel. These wood yards are a very common or a recurring motif in his paintings of men just sitting and waiting for their clients to come. So they're not actually cutting wood. There's quite a lot of repose in his paintings, even though they depict laborers. And so that, that kind of fits with that tri- very stable triangular composition that he selects. I'm, I'm struck, yeah, there are lots of piles of wood in lots of paintings, both on the boats and on the banks. And yet the banks of all of, or almost all of Bingham's rivers are heavily forested, which is probably not exactly by, by the mid-1850s the way it would have been. So he's he's probably 
maybe projecting a teeny bit here, but he, he's probably also happily being a bit nostalgic throughout. I I agree with you definitely. I mean, in the in that he stays with representing flatboats even in the era of steam. There is some nostalgia there because it is he's representing men who are in harmony with nature, you could say. They are harnessing the natural power of the river's current to travel rather than fighting it. They are not exploiting the wood and clearing the forests for steamboat fuel, but not, you know, they're not taking from the natural beauty of the setting in order to fuel steamboats. Americans in the 1850s who were buying prints of Bingham paintings in the East probably would have recognized from their childhoods in the 1810s and 1820s the, you know, rivers as as highways for goods and and the forests, which by the 1820s were significantly gone from the East. I mean, there would have been lots of nostalgic indicators that would have motivated buyers. Right. And, well, and it also shows that even though it may have been gone in the East, there was still plenty in the West. But at the same time, I mean, the, the, river, that, the river that Bingham depicts is, you know, it's a they're clear rivers. I mean, one thing that the rivers were also known for were the amount of was the amount of trees that were actually in the river, <laughs> making it very difficult to navigate. Um, and so Bingham, um, in his lifetime, was a very active politician and political figure who was trying to uh, get, who was an advocate of getting federal funding for clearing the Western rivers. And so his in his life as a Whig Party politician, he was very interested in showing an ideal version, an ideal, um, ideally free landscape for movement, a very mobile river. Um, and, and in the times that he shows steam, he, and there are several instances in which he shows steamboats broken down, steamboats run aground, tilted at an angle, tilted at an angle, run aground on shallow sandbars. And so for him, that technology was not was not without implications. It, they, it, the river needed to be maintained for navigation. And so he, in some ways, even though Bingham's pictures are very ideal, he actually showed the reality of what it would have been like in the 1840s to travel on the river on a steamboat. It would have been full of stops and starts and delays and offloading of cargo in order to get uh, in order to wait for the river's water to rise enough for the steamboat to start going again. All that wood for all that steam. Right. And he, as a local, knew that reality. And so that is another thing that makes his paintings unique, is that he is really representing an, a sense of the everyday. You know, we talk about his genre paintings as being scenes of everyday life, but he is really seizing on the mundane, on the quotidian, the common, rather than the sensational, which was what typically marked images of the river during his life. Really, every American artist of his generation, Bingham goes to Europe in pursuit of some polish. Do we see any impact of that trip in work he does of and around the river? There is one painting called Jolly Flatboatman at Port, painted in 1857 while he is in Dusseldorf, Germany. And it's, so it's the second time he 
he revisits this theme of a dancing flatboatman. And it was the it was the image that made him famous. It was the first version done in 1846 was selected by the American Art Union and to be made into a print, and it was distributed to almost 10,000 of their subscribers. And so it was something that he he was known for. It was his best known image. And so when he goes to Dusseldorf, he is studying with um, Emanuel Leutze and other Americans who affiliated with the Dusseldorf Academy. But he scales up. The, his compositions from a relatively small painting to a, quite a large one. And he, in Jolly Flatboatman at Port, he multiplies the number of figures, uh, scales up the size of those figures, pulls in figures that appeared in, Earl, in other river paintings, kind of gathers them. It's kind of this, this culminating, culminating painting for his whole river painting project. And I think there's, you know, some correlation. He's not only, I mean, there's, there's a correlation between uh, the time he's revisiting this theme. That's 1857. We're getting closer to the Civil War. There is a more sectional conflict in his home state of Missouri as a slave state. And it's the first time that he includes an African-American figure in any of his river paintings. So he's making a nod towards the political, the, the political tenor of the time, even though he's not even in the United States anymore. I mean, I think in some ways that figure might have functioned for a German audience to market as a, an American river, because of course Dusseldorf is, is on the Rhine River, and, there, and many American artists use the Rhine as a stand-in for an American river in the paintings they created while they were there. Bingham made one last river painting in the 1870s. Why? He did. He, he and it's the same motif, the dancing flatboatman, and he. Same same star figure. Same star figure, same and same supporting cast, same musicians, somebody playing a tin pan, somebody playing a fiddle, and figures watching the dancer, but also looking out towards the viewer. And this is a sm a smaller version of the Jolly Flatboatman that. We think he probably used the print made after his 1846 version as a study for this 1870s version, because by this time he had sold all the drawings that he used as preparatory sketches for the river paintings. He had sold them to the St. Louis Mercantile Library and didn't have access to them anymore. By the 1870s, he is back in Missouri. He's been appointed as the first professor of art at the University of Missouri. And he was, I think, looking back on his career, what he was known for and was wanting to include this, this motif in a kind of retrospective exhibition that they were having at the university. And I think also he was picking up on a strain of nostalgia that ran through American culture in the 1870s and 80s that looked back to the antebellum Mississippi River as a kind of golden age, a kind of time, as, you know, whether it was through for healing from the Civil War. But you find images of the Mississippi really get popular again in Courier and Ives prints as well as the writings of Mark Twain. And that's the same time that Bingham decides to revisit this motif. The, the country becomes interested in its history at the centennial. 
Definitely. And and also I think that, you know, the river again be, becomes something that is a unifying element for North and South. Ninette Luarka-Shof, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.